my name is Graham, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the honor of being with you today in this way. Acts chapter 2 is where it will be this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 2. We are continuing a series that we have entitled Foundations for Freedom, obviously coming off of uh, what was Keys to Freedom, uh, the beginning of this year. Many of us walked through that series and uh, that curriculum, those concepts in multiple different arenas, and then kind of parlaying that into uh, foundations for freedom, or think about it as tools to see freedom. What has to be present in your life for freedom to be experienced? Kathy Boone spent the last 10 years of her life living in abject poverty, moving from homeless shelter to homeless shelter, living on the street, and eventually dying in a warming center in January of 2020 in Astoria, Oregon. For the final four years of her life, her family had been frantically trying to get in touch with Kathy. They had not seen her in a number of years. No one had a good phone number, knew where she had gone. It had been very distant. And they had even gone to the length of hiring a a private investigator to go track Kathy down. Because what Kathy didn't know is that her mother had died. And when her mother died, she left Kathy $884,000. Her father, Jack, told the local news, news source, news station there in an interview, I'll get the quote close, he said, it just didn't make sense to me. That money was just sitting there, and she needed it in the worst possible way. The reality is, Kathy died homeless and broke with $884,000 with her name on it. Not having any idea the depth of the resource that was available to her. And before you and I shake our heads in condescension, we think how foolish, how in the world could she not know I think we may have more in common with Kathy than we might realize. Ephesians 1 tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you, in me. And if I could just be real honest this morning, I know we're jumping right in, but if I could come into your living room and kick my feet up on your coffee table for just a second... I think so many people who claim the name of Jesus choose a life of abject spiritual poverty, living spiritual paycheck to paycheck, never getting ahead, never experiencing the abundance that Jesus talked about in John 10.10. We'll show up when we need something, We'll, we'll let the tank get on E, and then we'll come back and fill it up a little bit. Never feeling the full weight of the resource that's available to us. The resurrection resources that are available to you and me. The hungriest I've ever been in my entire life was July 1st, 2013 in the Guatemalan airport. My team, had, we a college ministry team, had gone over and we were serving there for a week Um, and and the last two days of that trip, I had gotten very sick, and I hadn't had anything to eat or drink in about 48 hours, and I woke up this last morning about 3.30 to go to the airport, and I felt okay. 
was like, man, I'm ready to eat. I'm good. I need to get something on my stomach. It's 3.30 in the morning. Not much is open in Guatemala City at 3.30 in the morning. <clears throat> and so I think, you know what, I'll just get to the airport. We'll, we'll grab something there. So I'm in the back of this van, and we're driving to the airport. And I'm thinking, man, I've served in some of the most dangerous places in this third world country, and I'm going to die of hunger in this van. Um, and so we get to the airport, and I'm thinking, man, if I can just get through security and get to a little market, see what's open. And so I get to security, and of course, they, have, they play 20 questions with me. Uh, man, like they're checking my bag. I got an interview with somebody. I'm thinking, bro, like just not today. Pick somebody else. I am, I am, I am at my wit's end. So I get through security, and I, I get to, uh, you know, I'll just commit. I'm just going to the first market that I can find. Turns out to be the only market in the airport that was open at 4 in the morning. So me and 30-something of my closest friends decide to get in line. I'm at the back of this line. No joke, about 45 minutes of standing in this line. I'm, I'm literally trying to stay alive in this airport. The customs agents are looking at me going, what is this? what's wrong with this dude? So I finally get to the register, and I don't even care what I grab. It's Doritos at 4.15 in the morning. I don't care. Something has got to happen. So I get to the register, this is the sweet lady who's been so patient with so many hungry people, and people are traveling and all that, so she, I get to the register, and I, I just grab whatever I see, and I throw it on the register, and she rings it up, so patient, rings it up, and I swipe my card, and it says declined. I was like, okay, so maybe it's a foreign transaction thing, maybe the card is, you know, I need to wipe it off or something, so I, I take it back, and then I swipe it again, and it beeps, and it says declined. And I said, Lord, I've been doing your work all week. Don't play with me right now. So the lady says, here, I'll take the card. She's going to enter it manually. And so she gets to, she looks at the card, and then she looks at me, and in her broken English, she says one word that brought actual pain to my body. She said, expired. The reason I know it's July 1st is because my card expired at the end of June. Don't miss it. It didn't matter in that moment how much money was in my bank account because I didn't have the tool to access it. I could have had all the money in the world sitting at First Tennessee, but it didn't matter because I didn't have the very thing that I needed to access those resources. She can take my word for it, but that doesn't buy the Doritos, right? I didn't have the tools. So over the last few weeks, we've been talking about these tools, these debit cards of the faith that allow us access to the resources that are available to us. And this morning, we're going to talk about the, the access point, the debit card, if you will, of fellowship. And as soon as I say that word, I know that there's many in the room who grew up in the Baptist tradition enough to know that we have the three F's in Baptist culture, food, fun, and fellowship. I feel like it was on every poster growing up as a kid. It was always, oh, well, come join us for food, fun, and fellowship. I'm not sure if Jenny said that in the Easter egg thing, but I promise you it's come up at some point, right? That food, fun, fellowship. But here's what I want to suggest this morning. Through our, our look at Acts chapter 2, I want to suggest that God's intention for fellowship is far higher than potlucks and game nights. That there is a component that we have missed when it comes to biblical fellowship. And so Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be, a familiar text, Acts 2 and verse 42, towards the end, here's the picture of the first church. 
It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. That word fellowship literally translating to partnership, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I want to pause there for a moment. I don't do word studies very often, but I think it's important to note that the word for devoted is an action word. It was to, literally translates to persist or to continue steadfastly through. It was not a, a feeling. This wasn't I feel devoted or I, I have passion in my heart or I, I'm interested. No, it was a we are willing to take action. And interestingly enough, it was only used five times in the whole Bible, this word. And every single time it was used was connected to the church. It was a word reserved for the local church. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together. You hear the themes. And held, wait for it, all things in common. And they sold their possessions and their property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. I want to pause there for just a moment. You'll begin to see the themes of the collective the together. They all were in one accord. This phrase, all things in common, is an interesting one. And I think the way that it translates in the English, it leaves a little bit to be desired. It kind of is a little bit ambiguous. This all things in common is not meant to suggest that everybody was of the same opinion. Not everybody became a trusted Jesus and became a Tennessee volunteer fan. You know Jesus, you know Tennessee Volunteers. There's not many benefits to being a Tennessee Volunteer fan, except you are real clear on the concept of total depravity. <clears throat> it was not that everybody in the room had every opinion aligned. They were not of the same preference or opinion. It's that they were under the same conviction. That is, that people mattered more than preferences. People were at the center of everything that they had done. To give a little context of where this selling their possessions came from. The early church included residents of those people who lived in Jerusalem, but also included people who had pilgrimaged over a little less than two months before the day of Pentecost, about 50 days or so, for the Passover. And so you had the influx, right, of people that did not live in Jerusalem, but that came over to be there for the season of Passover. Well, when God sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the whole game changed. Everything they had once known about their faith and their belief system was completely rocked because they had access to something different. It was God in spirit for the very first time. And so there was a whole lot to learn. There was new steps to take. There was a lot to be uh, gathered and, and, and uh, uh, I guess it would be maybe uh, attained in their knowledge. And so they had a desire to grow these people who didn't live in Jerusalem. So literally, there are real implications to that, right? There are financial constraints, right? I have to stay somewhere. I have to eat. I was not prepared to be in Jerusalem for this long, but I don't want to leave. And so literally what would happen, this wasn't just a free-for-all. We'll just sell everything and just kind of divide it up and go Dutch here. This was legitimately the strategy to keep people alive, to keep them fed, to keep them sheltered while they could learn 
the new faith. So if someone was running out of money and they wanted to continue to learn and grow in their faith and know Jesus, man, somebody would say, I got, you know what, I got some livestock I can sell. And we'll do that and we'll keep you here. It was this picture of community, sacrificial community. And, and I think that's the, the heart of this, right? Don't miss it. These people were literally willing to do whatever it took to help people understand and know Jesus. It didn't matter if it cost me or my neighbor or the person down the road. It didn't even matter how much. Why? Because the game had changed. There was a mission that had been launched. When I read this story, and I read this picture, it's not just the institution of the church doing church things. It's real people making real sacrifices in the name of a real mission. I don't want us to move past and just say, well, that was just church ministry. I'm sure they had church business meetings and some budget meetings and they had a finance committee. And they, No, they didn't get into the polity. This was, man, what do I have to do? Because I'm, I'm in. I'm doing it. I'm there. And if I can just be real honest this morning, and I mean this with every ounce of humility in my bones, it's, it's passages like these that cause me to check up and go, where did that go? Where is that in me? Where is that in, in the, the big C church? Not just Clearview, but the, the global church. Why, where is that fire? Where's that passion? What, what happened? What changed? Because this, this is what it was meant to be. Where did it go? From time to time, it, for me and, and then pastors and really leaders across the, across the world, you find them, we find ourselves in conversations that, that can, in some sense, be a little bit uh, predictable. It's this, you'll hear this phrase, I just think the church should do blank. The church should offer fill in the blank. Man, I just think that the church should be providing this for me or my, my family or for these people. Or I, think, I, I think that the church should be more involved or, or should offer this. And sometimes those statements are simple and they're innocent and they're well-intended. But sometimes the tone of those statements caused me to want to ask the question, and, and again, with all humility, hey, when you, when you say the church... Like, who are you talking about? Like, who, who is the, the church when you, when you say that? Is that the institution? Is that the 501c3? Is that the, the nonprofit? Is that, is that the, the, the pastor? Uh, who, who is it that you're suggesting should be involved? Don't get me wrong. I do understand that it's in moments, that, in those conversations, that I'm typically one of the only ones that earns a wage from the church. I do get that I have more responsibility here. But the interesting thing about this passage, and the one that, is, that is, is honestly overlooked a lot of times, is the majority of what we just read and will continue to read was not done by the apostles. The majority of what we see, the actions, the behaviors, the disciplines, the involvement, the participation, was not just the pastors handing stuff down. In verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves in verse 43, it says, everyone was filled with awe. Verse 44, all the believers were together. 
Verse 45, they sold their possessions. It wasn't just what the apostles did. It wasn't what church leadership did. No, it's what they all did. Why? Because biblical fellowship is not about consumption. It's about contribution. This is the model in Acts chapter 2. It's not about consumption. It's not about what I can gain. It's what I can give. It's what I can be a part of. It's not about membership. It's about partnership. That word fellowship at the very beginning literally translates to partner with. This is the mission. This is the ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church, right? This is the picture of what it was supposed to be. And if I can just own a little bit of this for a second... I think one of the phenomenons that happened during the pandemic was that many ministry leaders and churches began to seek ways to do ministry for people and not ways to do ministry with people. We were in full-on panic March of 2020, right? And so the, the attention turned to online services, and the language in those meetings is even, how can we offer the best experience how can, we, how can we create the best environment? What can we do to, to provide this? And those things aren't inherently bad, but we shifted from ministry being what we do for people to ministry that we do with people. And that's on us. But Jenny Ross is not meant to do kids' ministry for you. She's meant to do kids' ministry with you. Tracy Sellers doesn't offer preschool to you. She does preschool ministry with you. Alexis and Zag don't offer worship to and for you. They worship with you. Well, I didn't like the songs we sang today. Well, here's the good news. They weren't for you. And I don't mean to come in and just completely stomp on the, on the feet, Okay. But here's the reality, and I know I check up a little bit and I recoil when somebody steps on mine, but uh, I forget who said the quote, but one of the things that I've learned over my time in ministry and really in life is sometimes when my feet get stepped on, it's possible that my feet were in the wrong place. And man, we've got to rearrange this stuff. This fellowship, this commitment, this missional component of the church because of all of this, this phenomenon, this shift, this change of approach, again, with every bit of humility that I have in my heart, and I use the we as the royal we, I am involved in this. I am a church member. I tithe to. I'm, I'm, I'm a, an owner in this place alongside you. But I think that what this shift is, has caused and the fear in my heart, if I can just be honest, and this is not me preaching it to you, this is just group therapy, is that the church of Jesus Christ has taken the form of a country club. We pay our membership dues. We vote on stuff. We expect to get what we paid for. When we don't, we speak to the manager and when that doesn't work, we go join another one. 
And it doesn't have to be that way, friends. It was never intended to be that way. And please understand, I do mean we. I am guilty of this the same way as the next person. But the diagnostic question that I have learned to ask myself is, am I offering more to this situation than my opinion? Are my two cents going towards the bill? If I can just be real honest with you. Sometimes I shudder at what we are leaving on the table by being so committed to wearing a whistle that we don't put on a jersey. You never see a referee holding a trophy because they don't win anything. It's the team that wins. And the church has got far too many across the world, far too many referees, and not near enough team players. People who are willing to say, you know what, I'm setting down the whistle and I'm jumping in. They don't need my opinion, they need my help. Man, this is the mission of the church. This is how God designed it from the beginning. You do realize the church is plan A. Like he could have, God could have rescued the world in any way that he wanted to, but his response to the brokenness and the sin and the, the hopelessness was to send Jesus and launch the church. That's it. There's not another chapter coming. The book is written. This is the plan. This is God's plan for the world. It wasn't always the way we see it today. And please understand, I, I mean the, the global church. I don't have names in my head this morning. I'm not looking at any of you specifically. I'm just saying this is a cultural shift that we have got to correct. We've got to get back to. We'll continue on verse 46. It says, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. Broke bread from house to house. I love this home group model, right? They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Notice here, you see the early church understood that community and fellowship wasn't just a part of life. It was actually where they found life. It wasn't just a part of their life, a little corner that they'd cut out and reserved for the church. It was, it was at the center of their life. It's where they, they ate together. It's where they, they, they prayed together. It's where they lived life together. Kids played together. There was this community and this togetherness that dictated everything else. It wasn't an option. It was a priority. It wasn't an afterthought. It was a forethought. It didn't entertain them. It enveloped them. It wasn't something they possessed. It was something that possessed them. It determined how they use their time, how they use their money, and how they ultimately use their lives. It was the very trigger that set off everything else that they were a part of. And I know that seems unrealistic today. I, I understand that seems a little bit unrelatable. That, that, that the, the, the life happens, I really do get it. And so how do we look at that tension Right, if we bring this, this concept down for a moment to, to our homes and our families, right? what does this look like? I've lived here three years now. And I don't know a ton. I still am learning some of, the, you know, some of the quirks and different things about this part of the country. But one of the things that's very readily apparent 
is that our culture is incredibly accomplishment and success driven. Most of you have advanced degrees or at least a wealth of experience in your field. We have many in senior level management in their companies. Kids, I work with students, and so, man, kids are aspiring to get into every school they can, and it's all about the test scores, and it's this achieve, achieve, accomplish, accomplish, success, success. And here's what I know about success, accomplishment, achievement, is that it requires sacrifice, right? Athletes don't just get to eat what they want to eat at all times, right? It's amazing when you begin to read, like, the regiments of major athletes. Let's say LeBron James spends north of a million dollars on his body a year. That's so much Taco Bell for me, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> There's a sacrifice component that's required to be great. It doesn't just happen. You don't wake up one morning and just become awesome. Or you don't wake up one morning and somebody hands you an MBA. Like, that doesn't just happen, right? It requires a commitment. It requires a a sacrifice, right? And here's what I know. In a success-driven environment, I believe oftentimes fellowship dies on the altar of accomplishment. It dies on the altar of success. You mean to prove it? The more wealthy people get, the further away they move from people. We're going to get more land. We're going to go out a little ways. We're going to be secluded. We want the privacy. We want the, you know, the gated community and all that. There's this success that creates this distance and independence maybe. And I don't need anybody else. I, people get rich. People come into some money. People are successful, and they go build the house on some land way away from everyone else. Why? Because there's a, there's a distance that comes with accomplishment. And I believe that fellowship can sometimes die on that altar. In the climbing of the ladder, of the moving up in the world. But can I tell you something, friends? I'm 28 years old. I don't know a lot. But here's what I do know. That's not the way it works in God's economy. It's countercultural. But here's what I can tell you this morning. If you hear nothing else, here's the point. You cannot experience... An abundant life by yourself. In fact, you'll be hard-pressed to find anybody in the scripture who found incredible success through isolation, through detachment. In fact, I can make a different case that it's isolation and detachment that brings destruction. When did the enemy attack Adam and Eve? When they're alone. When did he tempt Jesus? When he was alone. When did David sin with Bathsheba? When he was alone. You will not find the abundant life that Jesus talked about through isolation. You cannot experience it by yourself. That's not my rule. That's God's rule. Take it up with him. It doesn't happen on your own. I love what Tony Evans said. He said, when your get up and go has gotten up and gone, you'll need somebody who can lift you up. I love the picture. When what used to be there, the motivation, the drive, the purpose, the commitment used to be there, and then it 
fades off, you're going to need somebody who's right there to pull you back up. And can I tell you something? That's how it designed. That's how it works. Hebrews 10 talks about this, this concept of stirring each other up to good works and to love. This, this concept, this picture, I, I joke with some students that sometimes if I can get really involved and you know, pick at their lives a little bit and all that, that I'm stirring their Kool-Aid a little bit, right? Like there's this picture of stirring each other up, that I've given access to someone in my life that has carte blanche to call me out, to pull me back in. That there's, this, there's a structure that I've placed in that allows me to stay connected. How many of you know if you pull a, a coal out of a fire, it doesn't take long for that coal that was once burning to become dark and cold? You pull it out of the, the, of the, the little bonfire, the little, little fire pit, and you set it on the table. It'll be hot for a little while, and then it'll lose its color. It'll slowly begin to fade. But what happens when you toss it back in? Lights up again. Friends of the church is the same way. We get detached. We get pulled away. We, we, we step out of the fire for whatever reason. We, we get detached. We just get busy. We get hurt. Somebody lets us down. Can I remind you that nobody stopped following G Jesus because of Judas? People are going to fail you. If I went around the room this morning, I promise I have failed most of you in this room. Like, I, I'm going to let you down. Let me go ahead and get that out there. But that's no reason to disconnect. And I realize that I'm preaching to the choir this morning because it's, you guys are here. Adrian Rogers once said, I don't know how much Jesus you have, but I know you have as much as you want. There's always more to be gained. There's always more that you could jump in and engage with. There are ways for you to be committed and connected. There is great freedom. You want to talk about freedom? Great freedom through serving, through putting on the jersey, saying, I'm not just going to be a consumer who may show up a couple times a month and sit in the back and leave before noon. No, I'm, I'm in. I belong. I'm on team. So why does it matter? So what? Like, are you just going to, are you yelling at everybody because you want them to come to church more? Like, does it feel, does the full room feel better? <laughs> like, is that the end goal here? No, it's, it's far different than that. And here's, here's what I want to point us to to wrap it up. Why does this matter? We don't talk about fellowship, partnership, community, because we Somehow I get paid a commission based on how many people show up. It's not the end goal here. And listen, I know for, for me, let me just be real honest for a second and transparent with you. I am, my small group would tell you that I am the most inconsistent one. I, I get it. It's easy to get busy and get distracted. But here's why it matters this morning. Here is why we talk about fellowship. We don't talk about fellowship because it's just the right thing to do. Coming to church is just the good thing to be a part of. No, we talk about fellowship because it's the very thing that fuels the mission. Let me prove it to you. Verse 47, right there at the end. All of this has happened. This fellowship has been had. This community has been fostered, and everything is moving forward. They're, they're walking in lockstep with each other, and here's what happens. The very end, verse 47, every day, every day, 
day. The Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Not attendance going up for the sake of feeling good. This wasn't believers who were showing up. It's people who were trusting Jesus. That's why it matters. The fellowship of the church not only gave life to the believers, but it brought life to the world. The movement of God moves at the speed of the church. And there's a broken world who's depending on us. Literally, depending on what happens in this room every single Sunday to matter. Don't miss it. The fellowship, the gathering together of believers is so much more than just a good time, a good thing to be a part of. It's the greatest thing in the world to be a part of. Because there's nothing else you'll put on your calendar that impacts eternity than the fellowship of the local church. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world to sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.